Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Laura Stark about her really wonderful and innovative in many ways new book, Behind Closed Doors, IRBs and the Making of Ethical Research, that's out with the University of Chicago Press in 2012, and it's already out as a paperback for those of you who might be interested in purchasing a copy. Now, this is a book that is really wonderful on a number of levels. On one level, Laura introduces us here to a bunch of really fascinating characters and case studies individuals who emerge out of the different kinds of archives that she's working with to tell a story that is really surprising about human subjects research, Um, at least certainly for those of us who may not um, know a whole lot about the history and practice of um, human subjects research and institutional review boards um, specifically. It's also really interesting in the kinds of methodological resources that she brings to bear on this study. Now, this is a book that very deliberately blends the methodologies and archives of ethnography and history. And she blends them in such a way, and and she sets the book up in such a way, that the kinds of methodological reflections in the first part of the book on sort of how we might read the kind of documentary evidence available for studying something like this, uh, the the working in the practice of an institutional review board, um, the working in the practice of really any organization as read through documentary evidence, those methodological reflections really inform the case studies and the archival work that she presents in a more kind of historical frame in the second half of the book. So it's very ingenious. It works very organically together. I learned a ton from it. And it's a book that has potentially very wide implications for anybody, um, certainly for those who are interested in the history of IRBs, the history of ethical research procedures and the construction of that idea, um, the history of human subjects research, but really also other people who are looking for ways to merge innovatively uh, different kinds of ways of thinking about language, documents, time, and individuals, and how to relate them together in a story. It's a really engaging book. Um, It's very clearly written. I had a really interesting time talking with Laura about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Laura. Hi there. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Laura Stark about her great new book, Behind Closed Doors, IRBs and the Making of Ethical Research. And the IRB there, for listeners who may not be familiar with that acronym, is short for Institutional Review Boards. So Laura, thank you so much. Welcome, and thanks for making time to talk with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So can you start us off, as is traditional for um, for this channel, by saying just a little bit about what brought you to this field and to this topic? Why history and sociology of science and why IRBs in particular? Yeah, well, 
Um, my PhD is actually in sociology, but my affinities and the way I think it are often um, like people coming out of the history of science because I'm interested in questions of knowledge production. So basically how ideas of uh, what we take to be true or false, but also the extra valence of that, which is uh, what's uh, right and wrong. Um, so right as in uh, right and wrong, but also right as in true and false. Um, how these things get uh, created in social processes. So um, coming out of sociology, I... Um, originally started uh, doing quite a bit of work thinking about inequalities and policy sorts of issues and was really intrigued actually by the repercussions of that research, which is that it would get picked up and uh, be used in a variety of ways once it sort of um, hit the airways or, or hit the sort of the, the civic sphere. And I, at the same time, I was reading quite a bit of uh, Max Weber, of, um, of Foucault, and I was thinking about um, the processes that are involved in uh, in making these kinds of numbers and statistics and, and policy claims. And it became very hard for me to, to hold on to both doing policy-oriented work and at the same time reading about the processes through which these kinds of uh, truths were created. So I, I started layering on some uh, some training and, and more informal thinking and working with people in history of science and thinking about knowledge production. So my question was really about how ideas about what's the right thing to do are part of the knowledge production process. And so what I'm interested in with institutional review boards and sort of for people in other countries, they're often called research ethics committees or RECs, have these um, groups that actually decide um, how research can go forward in sort of in, in what ways or what needs to be changed, that those groups making those decisions are part of the knowledge production process itself. So these groups, um, ethics boards, uh, funding panels, even film, um, film review committees who give the ratings for films, they don't just say yes or no to whether something is acceptable uh, to do. They actually change it. They request modifications and limit or what can be done um, and so it's this this sort of uh, question of what sorts of uh, factors they take into account how this work is done um, was basically what I became interested in great now Laura if I'm um, correct me if I'm wrong but this started out as a dissertation is that right this is your first book Mm-hmm. It is my first book, and it did it start out as my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's particularly interesting to, to talk about, I think, and to hear about for a lot of our listeners is that transition. It's one that um, many of us either have gone through or are looking ahead to go going through in the future, the transition from a dissertation to a book manuscript. So if you wouldn't mind for a moment, can you talk a little bit about that transformation as you experienced it? Were there any major changes um, um, what was involved in that transition and what was the process like for you? Uh, well, the, the, the process was um, a really good one and uh, a very long one. And I can tell you a bit about how the book differs from uh, the dissertation 
which is that dissertation actually had uh, five five chapters, and the first was a, a long history uh, chapter on ethics board. The second one was a, a chapter on uh, professional ethics, and then actually I, I just put, took out took out all together. It didn't really fit, and um, actually published in 2010 in uh, the Journal of History of Behavioral Research. And then the the next three chapters were ethnographic studies of three institutional review boards, which I observed over the course of a year. And I also audio recorded their meetings. And I had done some very um, uh, analysis of the ways in which the people were talking to each other in these meetings and the process through which they started making decisions. So uh, the, the dissertation was structured in that way. And the book itself is, um, it, it's really crystallized into a very, in a very different way, which is that the first half of it are ethnographic chapters. And th- those are three chapters. And um, it's quite a bit of new, new, not new material, but new analysis. And then the last three chapters are all historical. And those are based on uh, new historical research that I did when I was a postdoc um, at the National Institutes of Health um, in the Office for History, which was really fantastic, a really great program, and also a postdoc in science and human culture at Northwestern. So I had the good fortune of quite a bit of uh, sort of additional informal training in history at those two, in those two postdoctoral positions, and also just time to do more research. So I think one of the most um, helpful things for me at that time in thinking about what I was going to be doing with a book as opposed to the dissertation um, was something that a, a senior a scholar had said to me, which was that you're basically taking your the evidence that you've gathered and you're just rethinking it and conceptualizing it in, in a new way. So honestly, I can, I can hardly uh, remember, embarrassingly enough, what the point of my dissertation was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point of the book came to be um, basically the question of how um, committees and committees of experts in particular um, it came to be given authority to make uh, decisions using a lot of discretion in uh, uh, liberal uh, liber- liberal uh, government systems. And then also to look at once these committees are set up and you actually build in discretion into law. So you can say, well, some people actually can just uh, use their judgment and say, uh, I don't have to follow any rules in particular. The rule is that I'm an expert and therefore uh, what I say goes. Um, how that actually works in a day-to-day sense uh, with all these committees who are uh, at these universities right outside the our windows or uh, in the hospitals that we go to for care, or even if we think about it the next time we're at the movies and see the the rating that the movies we're, we're watching have gotten, how, through what process did these, um, these standards come to be set and how has it actually shaped the product, the science that we know, or the artistic products that we have? Um, yeah, and so actually, I went with the University of Chicago and had a really fantastic um, experience with Karen Darling, who's a history of science editor, uh, who really ushered me through the the project. And she recommended a number of very good um, books that I appreciated. Um, it, from dissertation to book was a really particularly good one. And then I have other friends who used uh, who 
uh, used a book for, for different reasons called How to Write Your Dissertation in 15 Minutes a Day, which is good for, uh, for procrastinators. So I've heard. So um, anyhow, I just wanted to um, uh, sort of flag the difference in the book as well from uh, what I was sort of going for with the dissertation. Great. Now, one of the really wonderful things about the book, and one of the striking things about it, is that it does incorporate, as you've mentioned, both ethnographic and archival work. It's this wonderfully hybrid product of anthropological and historical modes. Before we get into the the nuts and bolts of the argument and the chapters and these wonderful stories um, that you've uncovered from us in both of these spaces, both in your interviews and in the archives, can you talk a little bit about your decision um, to shape the project this way, to incorporate both of these knowledge production modes and also to order them in the way that you did um, in part one and part two of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So the order, as you were um, sort of signaling, is unintuitive. So the ethnographic chapters uh, come first, and then an equal number of historical chapters actually come second. And this was a really um, intentional decision that Karen and I talked through and made together, which was um, to try to avoid the risk that by having history chapters first in a book that would then move on to ethnographic chapters, um, one would be inclined to read it uh, chronologically and to read the, the history chapters as background. And that's what I wanted to avoid. And um, I'm currently an assistant editor on a journal called History and Theory, and um, our great executive, our senior editor, um, Ethan Kleinberg, is has been sort of batting around and uh, has, has coined the term the new metaphysics of time and just thinking about uh, a variety of themes and how we understand time and how we theorize time in, in uh, how we theorize historical time. And um, one of the things I'm especially interested in is how um, the structure of our present day interactions are so tremendously dependent on the um, the ways in which individuals are sort of allowed and inclined to get together, but how this history is very um, in our lived experience. And so in putting the history chapters second, what I wanted to do was prompt questions about how the structure of ethics committees were created uh, in the process of reading the 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 ethnographic chapters, because I wanted people to have in their heads um, the fact that it's not intuitive that you would have these sets of experts, these sets of administrative people, no scientists, no researchers themselves participating in these kinds of decisions. Um, and then to have that be a, a, a real um, uh, pressing question that you would get to with the fourth, fifth, and, and uh, sixth chapters of the book. And I guess almost to to claim and to, to point out for ethnographic and present-day work the importance of historical work. So I think that's what I was trying to, to accomplish. Great. That's actually really fascinating um, to hear about. And after we're done, we're, let's make an appointment to have another conversation about history. And <laughs> I think that's a whole, whole other conversation. Thank you, Laura. So the book explores how you, as you've mentioned, how U.S. researchers designed government rules for the treatment of human subjects after World War II. It also examined the consequences for right now of the choice that these researchers made to adopt rules or to adopt certain rules in making those decisions. 
questions. These are what you call review procedures rather than ethics procedures. And you take us through what's endured from this choice. And this is a system and one that you uh, mentioned briefly before, the system of governing with experts and experts of, of various sorts. Now, the book is separated into two parts, um, and the first part really go- takes us through this ethnographic experience that you had and, and sets out a theory um, that's really, really interesting and incorporates a lot of ways that I think really have legs um, for how we think about th- the relationship really between um, experience, language, and decision-making in groups. So I want to start by asking you a little bit about this first part of the book. A major argument in this first part rests on your definition and explication of the role of what you call declarative bodies in shaping expert decisions about human subjects research. So because this is such an important part of the book, can you say a little bit about this notion of declarative bodies and and sort of what the genesis of this was for you and how it's important um, to this work? Yes. So um, the the term declarative bodies actually was something that I came to extremely late. And I have to credit uh, my friend and uh, sociologist, uh, Debbie Becker, who gave me that, that phrase when I was talking with her about this problem and of uh, coming, trying to mark out what I was seeing with my ethnographic and historical materials. And what I was um, really trying to capture is... Um, um, a way to explain the the fact that at the end of the day, at the end of an ethics meeting, whether in the present day or at NIH in the 1950s, uh, when these scientists who are meeting together, experts who are meeting together, reach the end of um, a, a committee get-together, they can say that a project is acceptable or it's not acceptable. And so that's basically an answer to the question, uh, what is uh, right or wrong to do? What's acceptable or unacceptable? And it simply was whatever this group of people uh, said was so. And um, it for me, it also operates in parallel to uh, a lot of the stories we hear about uh, scientific knowledge production, which is that groups of uh, scientists work through a variety of uh, conventions using different technologies. And uh, at the end of it all, they just come to a consensus, come to agreement about what is true. And so declarative bodies, for me, um, uh, are those groups that um, essentially are able to say they have the political authority, typically by law. So IRBs are an example of a group that by regulation simply have the power to do this thing. Whatever they say as uh, acceptable or unacceptable is the case. And so that's what I mean by declarative bodies. And it draws on... um, speech act theory. And so I became especially enchanted uh, by the work of uh, Austin, who's a a philosopher of language that I'm sure many people are are familiar with, was uh, current a few decades ago. And I actually read um, Emily Martin's really, she has a very lovely section in which she uses Austin and speech act theory in her book, Bipolar Expeditions, to talk about um, the the creation of um, uh, mental health categories. And so it was in reading Emily Martin's piece in Bipolar Expeditions that I went to Austin and Austin helped me kind of uh, solve the problem of how to think about people who 
when they say something, the whole world changes. So Austin's classic example, it's very, um, I would say, politically inappropriate in the present day, uh, it, thinking about um, uh, the politics of marriage in 2012. But Austin's uh, example is uh, a, a person saying, I, I now pronounce you man and wife, and it has to be in the right context, and there have to be uh, sort of the right sorts of uh, situations set up. But if someone has uh, the authority to do that, the entire the entire world changes that the two individuals now have the legal, the social, um, the uh, just conventional standing of being a different entity altogether. So it's basically about how objects in the world are created, such as acceptable research proposals, um, such as uh, married couples, anything which can just be created essentially through words and political authority. Great. Now, this is this is one of the most important, or certainly one of the very important notions um, that really structures the argument and the story for this first part of the book and beyond. Another of the notions that you invoke in talking about the work of this very particular kind of declarative body that you're focusing on, the Institutional Review Board, or IRB for short, um, another one of those notions that you invoke is the practice of seeing like a subject. And this will, this phrase seeing like a subject, as you mentioned in the book, is derived from James C. Scott's seeing like a state. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and how that is important to what's happening um, in the really mechanics and practices of these IRBs? Yeah. So what I'm interested in, um, the idea of seeing, seeing like a subject, and this came out of my, uh, my field notes and really going back and, and listening to the audio, audio recordings of these IRB meetings and how they unfolded over time was that, um, many of the decisions turned out to be based upon uh, people's projections of what research participants were like. And so when I, when I think about seeing like a subject, it's uh, the notion that particular individuals are put in a position, um, not necessarily to ask people what they feel or what they think or how they, how they see the world, but implicitly they're imagining themselves to be a a subject equivalence and able to say how, uh, how someone who's participating in a study, uh, would experience situations. And what I argue in some of the, the other chapters is that, um, in seeing like a subject, what people who are actually serving on committees are, uh, in are doing sort of unintentionally is they're they're building in their own uh, social structure uh, into how they think other people feel. So to be more concrete about it, basically um, we're only able to imagine what other people are like based on people we know or our, our own experiences. So given that um, I think almost exclusively everyone serving on the three committees I observed were um, white, upper middle class, highly educated um, individuals, they were in the position of um, either perpetuating some fairly unsavory uh, stereotypes of people who uh, were in minority communities or in particular sorts of um, 
needing particular sorts of studies done on them, um, or else they were drawing from their own uh, experiences in nuclear families uh, living in um, suburban neighborhoods, what their na- what their neighbors were like. And so it was a way of thinking about the, the biases of individuals who are trying to imagine uh, other people without actually recognizing that it's uh, a process of imagination. Now, this actually gets us really nicely to the theme of and the argument of the first chapter, and this is an argument about what you're calling warranting. So this chapter sets out an idea called warranting to explain how IRB members reach consensus on their group recommendations during deliberations that are closed door. This is specifically about deliberations that you were privy to as an ethnographer, but that other people would not be privy to because they're they're not public. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the concept of warranting? What What is it here and uh, why is it important to what's happening behind these closed doors? Yeah, so warranting actually it's another um another I draw um, from philosophy. So talking with the through the book with you, Carla, actually makes me realize how indebted I am to a lot of language philosophy and thinking in thinking uh, through the arguments that I make. But warrants are essentially justifications, and they're the reasons that uh, they are reasons which all of us give in our everyday life to explain what we do or what we think. So. Um, uh, an example from the book would be that um, uh, we ought to do um, we ought to do a particular study on uh, birth control pills because there have been uh, lots of previous studies done before, and this has been shown to be safe. So the warrant is basically everything that comes after because, and it's it's any time you can. Exp- you can implicitly hear somebody uh, giving a reason or giving an account for why they made a decision or why they took an action. And so I, I became um, interested in warrants and actually sort of worked backwards to that that concept. And I have to credit my um, my PhD supervisor, um, Bob Withnow at Princeton, uh, for help for pushing me in that that direction with philosophy. Um, because I was essentially being asked, well, what's the punchline? Who does actually um, uh, sort of get the last word in whether a protocol that is designed to do a research is approved or not approved, or whether a committee requests a lot of modifications or very few modifications? And my, my answer was, well, there's a lot of different ways that people justify, and it's all very messy, and at the end of the day, somebody wins. And so um, I went back through my recordings and basically um, parsed out a, a variety of different ways that individuals would explain why they thought their course of action was the best one. And so the warrants that I outline are um, warrants based on uh, private experience. So these are things drawn from people's um, personal lives, like being a parent or uh, having a friend or, uh, for example, saying, well, my father um, got really scared when he had this test done. So I think other people would find it scary as well. Um, Other warrants... Um, were uh, 
the the main one, I'm sorry, I just want to sort of leap to this, is uh, professional experience. So basically saying that um, I know what the best thing to do is because I have research experience in this very same field and I've seen exactly this kind of situation before. And so basically what um, individuals on, in these meetings end up doing is trading ideas around, sort of batting ideas around, but they're all ideas about what the best thing to do is based on different warrants. And another one is matter matters of fact. That's that's the third one that I look at. And matters of fact are, um, uh, for example, the one that I, that I used earlier, which is that there's been uh, a published trial done. Anything that's objective or outside of uh, one one person's um, claim to know something. And what ended up happening was that people who drew, not surprisingly, on um, a, a, a warrant for having a professional experience um, typically were taken most seriously, but it, it wasn't because it was most objective or uh, scientific, but because it was the least... Um, it, it 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 couldn't it couldn't be debated when something is based on a, a singular individual subjective experience. It's very difficult to critique that, and so both uh, personal ex- uh, private experience and professional experience were very persuasive because it was very difficult to uh, deny someone. Uh, that someone had had a particular experience. Um, but at the end of the day, the people with professional experience um, would typically win over people who made a claim based on their private experience. But I will add um, that I also suspect that the people who are making uh claims based on private experiences tended to be people who were, um, uh, they were, they were in, they're taken less seriously on these committees as well. And so that also just goes to show that although um, there's a lot of critiques of the IRB and um, sort of the, the committee at, at, in all sorts of places in universities and, and hospitals, that, um, that they are simply groups of people who are trying to cobble together a decision. And, and I'm interested in how they build a consensus, how they reach an agreement. And for me, that's um, basically all about warranting. Great. Now, you mentioned the importance of thinking about language and sort of language um, philosophy, perhaps, as a way to conceptualize some of these arguments um, and some of these uh, sort of case studies of group decision-making. Another place where the importance of language in a different way, in a more material way, perhaps, um, comes up is in a chapter in which you look at the ways that meeting minutes, so this document um, of meeting minutes, can both chronicle decisions, so the way we're um, kind of used to thinking about the minutes that come out of a meeting as a sort of after-the-fact thing, but also, and surprisingly, you're showing here that they play an active role in the decision-making process. And you're, you're actually arguing that sort of this way of thinking about meeting minutes as shaping the course of the deliberations gives us a way to think about documents as social artifacts in terms of what you're calling an anticipatory perspective. Now, because this potentially has um, very wide implications for how we think about documents in social settings in general, can you talk a little bit um, about this aspect of your argument and how... Um, of what the importance of that is for you in this book. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a great connection with um, seeing my my continued uh, interest and concern with how language works in these in these sorts of settings. Uh, And so you're referring to chapter three, and that's a chapter that I um, actually I wrote um, to try to deal with the question or the frustration I was having, actually, as I was workshopping um, different drafts of chapters um, with the fact that most people with whom I spoke would refer to the IRB as opposed to, um, to, to me. And I would always refer to the, the people who serve on IRBs or the, these sets of members. So I was continually referring to these people as individuals, probably because I, um, had been in, in, in the field with them. I had been observing them. And so I could think of them as, as individuals. Um, but somehow, uh, most people with whom I spoke tended to talk about these groups of people as if they were some sort of coherent, cohesive social actor. And it, it occurred to me that there was, it was the part of the translation process between what happened in these really messy, um, uh, discussions, in 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 the in the process during the course of the meetings that they would just get um uh refined and sort of crystallized in these very uh simple bullet point statements on meeting minutes and in letters to investigators in which the IRB was a social actor. So the IRB thought or the IRB recommended things. So I became interested in um, what the what the consequence of uh, being able to say and the IRB made this decision as opposed to oh, well, uh, John uh, decided this was the right thing to do and he had the best warrant. And so we just decided to go with his, with his opinion. Um, and and what, I, what I'm interested in is um, how by uh, creating these almost organizational actors in documents, it, it has a few effects. The, one of the most interesting for me is that it actually frees up individuals um, to make even more uh, sort of radical, contentious uh, claims and decisions in these concealed meetings because they know that it will not be represented um, as their own opinion, but it'll be represented as the opinion of uh, an organizational actor, an organizational object that doesn't actually uh, sort of exist in any, um, it it exists in a different material way than a person does. So you can't actually um, send a nasty note to uh, a person who will open it up and be the IRB, but you can do that to your colleague, John. And so the the implication of that is that uh, that individuals were much more, um, at ease with making really contentious, um, advocating really contentious positions and actually being quite a bit, I would say, more restrictive in their evaluations because they knew how their positions would be represented. And so this has implications if we think about um, uh, legal liability as well. But the, the other thing was that it, it occurred to me that this is, is um, different from how documents, the, the great anthropological literature on documents, had um, been conceptualizing the work that meeting minutes and letters and sort of the paper material culture, the work that does. And 
uh, I think a lot of the concern coming out of, for example, um, uh, Foucault has been with the fact that experts can create entities, create categories that get described in documents that other people then adopt and internalize or or resist. But what I was finding was that actually it was the, there were in some cases it was working the other way around. The documents weren't describing what happened at this earlier point in time. So again, some issues with questioning how, how we understand time and conceptualize time. The documents weren't reporting something that happened earlier. The, the knowledge, the future knowledge of the documents was actually changing the course of the meetings because people would uh, be told, well, this isn't going to report you personally. Um, and so go ahead and, and say what you really think. And as a result, the decision that was ultimately there to be recorded in the document was different than it would have been because of the conventions of the documentation itself. Thank you, Laura. Now, if performative language is one major theme um, whose fingers sort of thread through the book, another major theme that threads through the book, and this brings us to the second part of the book, is the importance of locality and thinking locally. Now, you have one of the chapters we didn't talk about in part one is a chapter in which you find that local precedents were consistently invoked in discussions about how IRBs would handle particular questions, sort of difficult questions. Now, this is the first of a number of instances in the book that focus on locality and its centrality to the history and practice of IRBs, albeit in different ways. So if one of the things that part one of the book shows is that despite their local variations, IRB meetings tend to be similar because they're all organized in essentially the same way at different sites, one of the things that part two does is take us into a very specific site um, that was really the basis for which or from which these modern versions that we looked at in the first part of the book um, stemmed. So part two of the book traces the emergence of this this system of review in the Clinical Research Committee, or CRC, developed at the National Institutes of Health in the early to mid-1950s. The CRC, as you show, was the model for today's IRBs. Now, a lot of the action of this story takes place in a space called the NIH Clinical Center. Now, this space is very, very important to your argument, and the the physical space of the center in particular is critical to your story. Um, So can you say a little bit about what is this clinical center? Um, What is it physically? What work is it doing in the book? And why is it important for the development of what you call here an ethics of place in the policies that came out of it? Yeah. So the um, the NIH Clinical Center um, is the site where most of the action uh, takes in the takes place in the history chapters of the book, and the the NIH's Clinical Center is important to me because it was the model. Um, that they set up uh, for ethics review, uh, that they already had set up for ethics review in the late 1960s and and early 1970s that actually just got picked up and built into uh, federal regulations uh, when there were hearings about uh, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments and when there there were all sorts of um, uh, moves pulling out of the civil rights era to put in place stronger um, protections for human subjects. 
projects. So basically, I'm I'm starting. Uh, I'm taking 1974 as uh, sort of the answer, which is 1974 was the National Research Act when human subjects regulations were were put into place. Um, and ask and and basically um, pointing out that it's not intuitive that you'd get these um, you'd get this kind of setup for how to go about making um, a good decision in science and and medicine. And so my question was, why did you have this structure? And and working backwards um, through all of these um, actually really fascinating meeting minutes um, in these federal archives. Uh, when I was uh, uh, at NIH in the in the history office, there's so many um, sort of internal informal files that have, if you piece them together, are just these really interesting, detailed, evocative stories about the day to day action. Who was who was having drinks with whom? Um, who who uh, who was really frustrated by another person? And who was basically involved in the day to day life of these administrators? who were, at the same time, scientists trying to build uh, the post-war federal medical infrastructure. So the Clinical Center uh, opened in 1953. And it's important because um, it it eventually became, sort of shortly thereafter, it became the only uh, federal research hospital. And so what's important is the fact that actual research was going on there and research exclusively. So you couldn't go there if uh, you were just sick because that was boring. You um, had to go there and actually be uh, available for research, which meant one of two things. Either you had a really interesting disease or a disease that they were um, interested or had a high priority on studying at the NIH. Or um, you were a healthy person who had volunteered to serve. Um, and so the clinical center opened on the main campus of NIH, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, which is just a few miles north of Washington, D.C. And it's still there today. It's much bigger. Um, it's, a, it's a real a real labyrinth of a, of a place. And um, interestingly, the puzzle was for NIH how to make it sort of legally more Morally acceptable to do um, uh, straight up research on people who weren't sick. So what I argue is that the puzzle was uh, for NIH to figure out um, a way to justify doing uh, what today makes perfect sense given the the, the gold standard of um, randomized control trials, which was research on healthy people, healthy civilians. Um, but the, the conventional sort of story is that uh, ethics rules were put in place to deal with sick people. And I, w- and I would say that the, the main concern for the clinical center was how to deal with healthy people. And the clinical center turned out to be important and their clinical research center turned out to be important because, as, as I said, uh, they were so plugged into the uh, basically to uh, to Congress, and there was a lot of traffic between uh, Capitol Hill and Bethesda, Maryland. That later on, when uh, folks were looking around for some sort of model of what kind of uh, ethics rules to put in place, they simply picked up the NIH model and built it into regulation. And so the implication was, as of 1974, any place that got uh, 
some federal money for research that involved people had to follow these rules. And these rules happen to be those set up by NIH and those set up by NIH happen to be those that were pretty idiosyncratic and just built to um, to meet the needs of the clinical center. And so the needs of the clinical center were um, to deal with healthy people, the fact that they're doing a lot of research and not, and not as much um, exclusive care as people might expect, but also um, that there were a variety of different doctors, uh, uh, clinical researchers in different fields who are all sharing the same space. So the way the National Institutes of Health is structured is that there are a variety of institutes within it. So the Heart Institute, Mental Health, um, and they all had to share this hospital. And um, as a result, they were trying to hold on to their own uh, disciplinary or uh, standards or the the standards of their medical specialties. They didn't want any uh, one group or any one person to uh, say what was right or wrong because they're all doing different sorts of, of research. And so they actually uh, created this committee structure in which the discretion was held to be most important. Whatever the standards were of um, a particular field was the one that ought to hold for a given case at hand. They didn't want to pin down any specific um, rules per se. They simply wanted to create a structure where they could, um, uh, that they could invest with a lot of discretion and also a lot of authority. And this ended up um, being very important for the way IRBs are, are set up today. Great. Now, you mentioned um, that one of the notable things about this um, institution is that it was uh, dealing a lot with healthy people, right? The, through the normal volunteer patient program, as you introduced, and these included religious objectors to the war, it included a number of kinds of people, and it created, as you argue, a new type of patient, the healthy patient. Now, one of these putatively, at least, as we find out in the book, healthy patients, is introduced in the next chapter, and this is the figure of Sarah Isaac, um, who's fascinating, and I'm not going to ask you to talk um, too much about her, but I'll just, I'm, I want to flag this for listeners, because she's a an incredibly interesting character. Now, the reason why I'm bringing her up is that she's one of these normal patients, but she becomes a fulcrum of discussions over what constituted consent in human subjects research, and furthermore, what constituted evidence of consent. And since this is such an important part of the book in which you bring us back to um, the importance of uh, sort of negotiations over a documentary archive of evidence, can you talk a little bit about um, consent as an issue and how sort of what's happening how do we get from um, from this sort of general sense that we need to assure consent by subjects to a particular kind of standardized consent form that eventually emerges um, as we understand today but that wasn't at all um, necessarily assumed in the context that you're giving us with Sarah Isaac and others so documentary forms of consent what's up with that yeah. So um, I will also say that um, so so Sarah Isaac is, is a pseudonym, and I use pseudonyms for um, for all of the healthy patients that I that I talk about in the 
in the book. Um, but I just became incredibly enchanted with these, uh, these people who were healthy volunteers and puzzling over why they went, but they're also just crazy. And a lot, I mean, uh, they were, they were, uh, uh, wild people. I'd like to meet them. And they were having a lot of fun and being completely unruly or just doing unexpected things. And so my current book project, which, um, I, I now have underway actually are, is, um, the story of these people who were the healthy human subjects and remarkably, um, and uh, happily, many of them are still alive and I've been able to trace them back. And I'm doing um, oral histories with them. And I've done 70 so far. And they amazing. They have um, photos. They have love letters. They wrote to their girlfriends and boyfriends from the 50s and 60s. And uh, so what, what I'm doing in the current book project is in part uh, telling their stories because they're hilarious. Um, and... Uh, also trying to show how our our current conceptualization or in in actually in the history of medicine I, I would argue of um, the space of a hospital is really restricted and really narrow so what I'm trying to do is show that these healthy human subjects saw this space very differently as part of their um, their religious service because many of, of them were coming from historic peace churches or as part part of their college, uh, college training. So even in looking at how people organize their uh, photo albums, the the chronology that people place their their time at NIH within their life course, uh, I think goes to show how they think about that space. And it's not necessarily or um, it's not primarily as a hospital setting. But that's another story, which I hope uh, will be will be done and written in uh, 2015, probably being optimistic. Um, anyhow, back to your your question about about um, consent forms and what uh, what Sarah Isaac is doing is doing for me there. Um, so Sarah is interesting because she came in as a healthy volunteer and she was actually um, a, a member of one of these. Um, uh, religious conservative uh, historic peace churches, and they, they were coming to uh, come and witness the work of Jesus, and it was a tradition of um, of service for a year, and so they would go to NIH and just you know serve as human subjects. Um, and she was um, a lot of fun, a bit unruly, and uh, because of this, she eventually um, she was there in the late 1950s. She was on psychiatric. Um, studies, and there were a lot of studies on LSD. She was included in one of them, and this was before LSD was known to be harmful, which was um, only started to be ta- to be understood and taken for granted around 1960. She was involved in these LSD studies, but um, she was actually just a real a real hassle, um, and so she eventually, long story short, got categorized. Um, as a schizophrenic, and so she went in. She went in as a healthy patient, and then she uh, actually got diagnosed while she was there as a schizophrenic. But of course, because of the way the research, the clinical center worked, if you're if you simply got a you know a pretty common disease, then you can't stay. So then she had to leave because she was schizophrenic. Um, and the issue was uh, how and to what extent could she actually be consenting to uh, to research? Now, one of my concerns um, is to uh, emphasize that I think the the present day uh, conventional way of thinking about consent is to think of it again in terms of paper, in terms of document and the practice of writing and, and of signing one's name. 
Um, but I think this really needs to be um, sort of historicized. And then the question is, how could we think of consent differently? And why did we end up with this documentary form of consent, given that it has pretty remarkable um, Im- implications um, for for literacy, for how you go about creating evidence in science? So this, again, is um, pretty reminiscent of a lot of um, uh, Bruno Latour stuff and many, many other people about uh, uh, written material. Um, but what alternatives were there and, um, and why did this shift happen? And what I show is that because of the, the organizational uh, place of the clinical center within the federal government, it meant that there are lawyers everywhere. And so the, um, the, Office for General Counsel was um, sort of right down the hall from the director of the NIH, who was also in charge of the clinical center, and so they could look out their windows and and, and see the clinical center, but also they'd uh, bump into each other, I would imagine, um, on the way to the, the men's room or uh, out for a smoke there because they're all smoking. Um, and uh, the 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 reason why. Um, I became especially concerned with documentation of consent was this puzzle of why we think it's uh, sort of uh, conventional that consent equals written forms um, was to show the importance of lawyers in uh, in crafting the ethics review structure, which, of course, um, shapes the kinds of research and the products of research that are done done today. And the lawyers, um, what, I, what I trace is a remarkable shift in the power of the NIH lawyers over in crafting the rules. So in the 50s, um, it's pretty amazing to me to see how much control the scientist administrators were able to hold on to over the over making the rules. They they actually wrote the rules for themselves about how the ethics uh, board should work. But starting in uh, the sixties, the and this had to do with a, a, actually a lot of um, the the building concern and then repercussions from the civil rights movement. The lawyers had a stronger hand in um, in crafting the rules starting roughly in the the long 1960s. And it was the lawyers who wanted to have written evidence so that if NIH got sued, they would be um, they would be in the best position in the court of law. So um, my my goal is to show basically the interactions not only between the research participants and the um, the staff, the federal workers at the clinical center, sort of to to uh, almost almost um, literally flesh out who was there and what was happening, but to show the the relationships between the lawyers and the scientists, the often antagonism, but. In the, over the course of the 20 years, the real shift in who um, in who got to say how consent should how you provide evidence for consent. So the the entire time, the clinical researchers wanted to hold on to their own testimony as the best evidence. And with the example was is with uh, patients like Sarah, uh, it's completely ambiguous 
uh, what state, what category she would have been in when she actually signed any legal form. So that was sort of used to dismantle the legal argument for written consent. Um, and it, it bolstered and actually sustained uh, researchers' positions for quite a long time to say that their own judgment about the the, the state and the ability of an individual uh, like Sarah Isaac to consent, that that researcher's testimony is the best evidence you could have. Um, and I think a lot of uh, literature in the history of, of law also um, also speaks to this because it shows the importance of witness, um, of, sorry, of, of expert testimony in, um, in the courts of law and especially in medical cases where um, it's what uh, experts testify is this the standard that um, that holds over any sort of uh, material evidence. So I, I think of the consent forms this way, and I think that it's a very important history that unites law and science. Well, Laura, thank you so much um, for for talking with us today. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and there's a whole chapter um, that's got a fascinating cases of the use of prisoners in medical research and sort of lost the implications of a lawsuit. Against against a cancer researcher who was funded by the NIH. It's in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, I typically ask people what they're working on next, and you've already described this fascinating um, this fascinating new project, so we'll await that. But um, as, a, as a way of closing before we let you go, is there anything about the book, um, it's so rich, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read it? Um. Well, yeah, I think we covered a lot of the, the arguments that are most important to me. And, and just to bring it back, my, my concern is basically with um, sort of the history of methods for making decisions. And, and that's what I'm um, curious about. And I think um, just in sort of a, a plug for um, thinking thinking through people who are trying to do ethnographic work and historical work or trying out um, different forms of evidence to make, to make a variety of arguments. Um, that uh, there's a lot of skepticism about whether I would be able to get access to the materials that I would uh, need to answer the kinds of questions I was interested in, such as how do ethics review boards make decisions if you look at them from the inside? Um, How did the NIH um, actually go about uh, cobbling together new laws because they were doing research using LSD. Um, that these materials are out there and they're they're uh, I think they're possible to access, but there's can be sometimes um, skepticism and self defeating skepticism about uh, whether it's possible to access that kind of evidence. And I'm just uh, eager and interested that there are, there are a lot of other enthusiastic people who are trying out uh, new methodologies, but also combining methodologies in interesting ways to tell um, fun and I hope useful new stories. Great. Well, congratulations on the book, Laura, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us about it today. Thanks so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.